evidence and answers. Is it possible the Jewish or Roman leaders stole the body of Christ and perpetuated the resurrection hoax of Christ? Are there other explanations for the empty tomb? How do we know the distance of stars and the size of our galaxies? These were just a few of the questions addressed at our question and answer time at the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, featuring Christian apologists Dr. Richard Howe and Dr. Hugh Ross. Join us now for an engaging time of Q&A with Pat and these fine scholars. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. We will be continuing on with a question and answer session taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You will see all the messages displayed. Now, let's conclude our question and answer time with Pat and his guests. So in my humble opinion, Aquinas' metaphysics really gives the best philosophical answer for most of the questions that we care about as Christians. Now, they're philosophical answers. They're not always theological, but they are interconnected in some respects. The Bible always describes God along the contours and categories of the created finite order. He's walking in the garden. He's moving around in the wilderness wanderings. He's got hands and feet and arms and eyes. And we all know that those things are figures of speech. But the only reason we know, for example, when Isaiah 55 says the trees will clap their hands, the only reason we know that's a figure of speech is because we are able to know enough about the nature of a tree to know that it doesn't literally have hands. So when Isaiah attributes hands to a tree, he's speaking metaphorically or poetically. I submit to you there's got to be some way we can know enough about the nature of God that we would be able to know when the Bible is speaking figuratively. So that when it talks about God moving in the wilderness wanderings in 2 Samuel 7, he's not literally physically because he's omnipresent. Right? Or he doesn't literally have eyes, even though the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro on the earth. He doesn't literally have nostrils or hair or all these kind of things. These are figures of speech. But I would submit the only way we know they're figures of speech, if somebody challenges it on those, interrupt, I don't think most people would take them as anything other than that under best scenario conditions. People say, well, so obviously God doesn't have hair, literally. But I think now, because of the toxic influence of these, or influence of these toxic voices, you have a Richard Dawkins who can't connect the dots. He's been so corrupted by bad thinking, in my judgment. So now we've got to triage the conversation enough to be able to show people, how can we know enough about the nature of God in order to be able to judge that the Bible isn't speaking literally when it ascribes these finite categories to him? And I think the key to that is what Paul gives us in Romans 1.20, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen being understood through the things that are made so that we are without excuse. Well, what does that look like to go from the things that are made that we see, hear, taste, touch, or smell to a God whose eternal, timeless, spacious, immaterial, all good, all powerful, all knowing, all wise, all loving, all righteous, and all good? What does that process, as I suggested, best case scenario, the process is you see the starry sky above and you know there's a God that he's all good. But because people have been corrupted by bad thinking, then we have to give a little bit more robust answer. So I think Aquinas gives us the best philosophical answers for how we know God exists. 
his superlative attributes. He gives us the best answers as to what human knowledge is. He gives us the best answers, in my judgment, as to what human nature is, and as an extension of that, what morality is, known historically as natural law theory, which we see imbibed in the Declaration of Independence. When it starts out, you know, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to sever the political bonds which connect them to another and assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitled them a decent respect for the opinions of mankind required if they give a reason which impelled them to the separation. And then the famous part, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, those self-evident truths were known, according to the founders, by the laws of nature and nature's God. Today, when we hear the expression laws of nature, understandably, most of us think of things like gravity, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear, and those are laws of nature. But historically, laws of nature expression also included moral laws that were knowable by human reason. I'll end with this. As Americans, I would submit to you, we don't have the luxury of time to wait till every American gets saved before we have the conversation about abortion. There's got to be some way we can help people who are lost still see the sanctity of human life, and now the sanctity of marriage and male and female relationships and other things. There's got to be some way that God has given us these tools to at least make that case as well as we can in his grace. And I think largely the way to do that historically has been this classical tradition that we've inherited from the Greeks and we augmented and modified to fit the truths we know from Scripture that the philosophy couldn't give us and marry those together into this robust system that we sometimes refer to as this classical philosophical realism. And that's why we champion that. That's what I think he has to offer. Okay, we're going to go with uh, number three here on your paper. It says, "How this is for Dr. Zucharin. How does the resurrection prove that Jesus is the Son of God? How do we know he isn't, he's not a Roman or some other unrelated God that's just leeching off of Judaism and its prophecies to get more followers? Well, only God can create life. Only God can give life. And Jesus Christ made that claim. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he was saying he's the source of life. Making that claim that he is indeed God incarnate. He has the authority of God. And the miracles that he did over every realm of creation confirmed his claim. And the fact that he could prophesy and accomplish his own resurrection from the grave, that's something that only God could do. Now, could he be a Roman God or something? Well, good article to read on our website, or there's a chapter in, in one of my books there. I think it's The Apologetics of Jesus. It's titled The Pagan Connection. And one of the things, uh, popular teachings at the university, what I was taught in high school and college, is that Christianity borrowed from the Greek mystery religions, all right? And eventually, you know, the Greek religion became the Roman religion. Well, if you study the Roman religion or the Greek religions, very different from the worldview of Old Testament Judaism from which Christianity comes out of. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. Uh, Judaism was, you know, the Old Testament taught very strongly monotheism. The Greek gods were like humans. They were petty, they fought, they had jealousy, they had affairs, you know. Well, that's very different from the God of the Bible who is holy and pure and just and righteous. Uh, this whole teaching of blood atonement sin, you know, sacrifices. That's completely foreign to Roman or Greek mythology. This whole idea of a bodily, physical resurrection from the dead is foreign to Greek or Roman mythology. So in all that, Christianity is very different from the Greek and Roman 
religion. It'd be very difficult for them to hijack from, you know, Roman or Greek mythology. It really would be. All right, Dr. Ross, you get this one. Scientists say that the Earth's inner core has stopped spinning. The magnetic poles are also reversing, which scientists say has occurred throughout Earth's history. Does this affect the old Earth or new Earth views? Well, it's a great example of why the internet is a huge problem today. <laughs> I mean, in the 21st century, we're seeing an explosion of these, uh, you know, conspiracy theories, and a lot of it is driven by the internet. And the internet is filled with articles about the, the spin being reversed. And my advice to you is don't trust anything you see on the internet about science unless they give you a link to the peer-reviewed paper on which the discovery is based. An honest uh, reporter will always give you the link. So you can go, and by the way, go to the paper. At least read the abstract. And uh, there's two uh, articles on the web that actually do that concerning this story about the spin of the uh, inner core of the Earth. And what you really discover is what it's saying is that the inner core relative to the mantle of the Earth. So the mantle, the inner core, the outer core are all rotating in the same direction. However, because the solid core is embedded in a liquid core and there's a fluid there, we see a slight differential rotation in the inner core relative to the mantle of the Earth. And so when they said it reverse direction, what they're saying is uh, it reversed relative to the spin rate of the mantle. It didn't really stop and go the other way. It's simply saying that, okay, all the, the mantle and the inner core are all rotating in the same direction, but there was a little, little bit less of a movement of the inner core relative to the outer core. And this happens frequently. It happens literally every few years. So uh, just before the pandemic, it happened there. What made the article interesting is this is a time uh, when geophysicists were able to make a measurement of this differential rotation to much higher precision. That's the news story, is that we now have the technology to measure this. It's not newsworthy that uh, we saw differential rotation. We've been seeing that for decades. And how do you measure it? Well, uh, when there's a, an earthquake, it sends seismic waves to the interior of the Earth, and this just gives you a picture of what's happening in the interior of the Earth. And a geophysicist also used dynamite, uh, where they'll set off a charge and be able to measure the seismic waves going through the Earth. Or they take advantage of the North Koreans doing a nuclear <laughs> test, and uh, they'll see what's happening with the waves going through the interior of the Earth. So uh, that, that's what's happening here. It's also such that the pole does reverse. Now, again, there's confusion on the internet. People are thinking, oh, the rotation axis is changing. No, we're talking about the magnetic pole, not the rotation axis, the magnetic pole. And the magnetic, you know, the, the rotation axis does move, but it moves very little, just a few miles, whereas the magnetic pole will move thousands of miles. So what's been happening in the last 15 years is the North Magnetic Pole has moved from a spot in the Northwest Territories of Canada and it's almost right at the North Pole. What does that mean? Your compasses are really accurate now. Uh, it's very close to the, but it's gonna be moving past it. And this happens, you know, every few thousand, every few hundred thousand years, the pole will move to such a degree it actually reverses. 
And uh, when it does reverse, in fact, we were mentioning that earlier, when it yeah. does reverse, the magnetic field drops. And what's happening, it goes from a dipole uh, feature to a multipole feature, where instead of just a north and a south pole, you've got multiple poles. When you get multiple poles, the magnetic field weakens. But once the reversal is complete, you get a dipole restored again, and the magnetic field strengthens. And so, and we, there's actually rocks that geologists have picked up where we can look at the magnetic signature in there and realize it's recorded 16 magnetic reversals in the past history of the Earth. And we can actually measure the time between the different reversals. So this is a fertile field of geophysical research uh, that they do this. But once again, when you're looking at the Internet and you're reading something scientific, if they don't give you a link to the peer-reviewed paper, don't trust it. And by the way, there's a great couple of websites. PubMed exhaustively gives you an archive of all the life science research papers that have been published. And then there's a website managed by NASA, adswww.harvard.edu. Harvard University maintains it. That's an archive of all the physical science research papers that are there. And so when you see a claim being made, not only look at the paper, also uh, put into the search engine a couple of words from the title of that paper. That will pop up for you all the other papers that have been published on that topic. That will tell you whether the paper you've just read is an outlier or whether it's mainstream. Because the peer-reviewed scientific literature is quite generous in permitting really wild ideas to be published just to see if people can disprove it. In fact, there's a journal called Physics Letters B that's exclusively for physics nonsense, where they basically encourage theoretical physicists and others to submit papers where they speculate about things that are almost certainly not true. But the whole idea is to challenge uh, the experimentalists and the observers to say, you know what, let's see if we can prove that that's wrong. Let's see if we can prove it's wrong to a very high degree. And incidentally, physics letters B, when they're speculating like this, they develop a whole new set of really gorgeous mathematics that can be applied in areas that really do pertain to reality. So, and again, when you look at a journal, read the first couple of pages and see what a subjective is. Are they only gonna publish stuff that's well-established experimentally and observationally, or are they encouraging speculation? This will tell you how to evaluate what you're reading. Here we go. This is our last question. In the discussion, this is for both Dr. Ross and Dr. Howe, both of you. In the discussion of death in animals and plants before the fall, is that a problem for either position, particularly theologically? Why or why not? I think it, it is for a problem for the young earth position, given how some young earthers would define death as either being good or evil. So if God pronounced the creation to be good at the end of day six, in effect, then it wouldn't be possible for there to be animal death. But all that we think we know about the past, or I shouldn't say all, but a lot of what we think we know about the past is from fossil records, which are only possible because some animal died. So there's got to be some other way for those young earth creationists then to account for those fossils sometime subsequent to the creation of Adam and nothing before that. And, and they would hold that view, I'm speaking in the third person for reasons I'll tell you in a minute, they would hold that view because they would regard Romans 5 to be saying that through sin, of Adam's sin, death came into the world. And the jury's out with me. As a, this is another thing. I'm making a lot of young earth enemies 
at this weekend if they hear a lot of the things I say. I'm not so sure that I have to believe that Romans 5 is, means death broadly, but may be confined to human death, and that it might be possible that there is a sense, depending on what you think the word good means, and I'm not trying to be, it depends on what is, is. I'm not trying to make that move, <laughs> if some of you are old enough to know what uh, that allusion is referenced to. I'm not trying to weasel out. Uh, in fact, as a Thomas, I love the conversation about what is the nature of good. I think there's a great answer to that that has far-reaching implications. And there is certainly some uh, robust sense in which the classical tradition and how it understood what it meant by good would absolutely include animal death, that that actually could be a good thing. In fact, I think most of us would admit that a lion eating a gazelle is good for the lion, <laughs> but not good for the gazelle, right? So even there they go, well, in some sense it's good because the lion certainly benefited. In fact, you wouldn't have the lion if he didn't have something to eat, perhaps. There's a book through Whippenstock that I have a chapter in called Answering the Music Man's Response to Dan Barker. I mentioned him earlier in my talk, The Atheist. One of the co-editors of the book, and I think maybe his chapter in that book, is on animal death before the fall. And so he gives a pretty thorough, and in fact, I think this is what his dissertation was on through the seminary. And he gives a thorough defense of the compatibility of animal death with robust Christian thinking about it, God pronounced it all good and these kind of things, especially in the contours of Aquinas' metaphysics. So I'm not so uh, dying on the hill for there can't be animal death before the fall as I think every other young earther that I know would die on that hill. Well, I think they're dying on the wrong hill in the sense that Romans 5, 12 through 19 is explicitly talking about death of humans not death of plants and animals. Romans 5.12, death through sin. Well, there's only one species of life that's capable of sin. That's human beings. Death through sin was visited upon all people. If uh, Paul meant all life, he would have said all life, but he says all people. So he's making two qualifications in the same sentence, making it clear that Adam's offense brought death to humans, and not necessarily including uh, plants and animals. The only other place in Scripture where this is addressed is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. And there again, the same Apostle Paul is excluding anything besides human beings. And I totally agree uh, with Richard here that it's a mistake to think that all forms of death are bad. You know, it does say in Genesis 1 that the creation is good, and God concludes by saying it's very good. But it's not the ultimate perfect creation. The ultimate perfect creation is the new creation. However, I would say that this creation, the universe, is the best possible creation, the perfect creation, for God to use it to eradicate evil and suffering. But the ultimate creation is the future. This is not the ultimate creation. It's not the perfect creation. The perfect creation is in the future but it is the very good creation, the very best possible creation for God to eradicate evil and uh, suffering. In the terms of the lion eating the gazelle, I would argue the gazelle benefits as well. Tell uh, that to the gazelle. Tell that to the gazelle. <laughs> well, in this sense, the way God designed animal life on planet Earth, with the one exception, that's us human beings. All the other predators, all the other carnivores, are not able to feed on the healthy adult animals. 
They're going after the weak, the injured, and the sick. And by going after the weak, the injured, and the sick, they actually benefit the herbivores. And we know that from field studies. When you take the carnivore away from the field, uh, what you see is that the disease rate of the herbivores skyrockets and the death rate of the herbivores also skyrockets. Carnivores actually minimize the suffering and the death of the herbivores. In fact, uh, you can watch a little video clip which shows these uh, Kodiak bears in Alaska and they're going down this line of walruses. So there's like a couple of thousand walruses along the beach and these Kodiak bears are going down the line of walruses and what are they doing? They're hugging the walruses. Not because they love the walruses. <laughs> they're trying to find out which walrus is sick. And what's really interesting, you can watch this video clip, is that the healthy walruses welcome this. They do nothing to defend the sick walrus. And so uh, they'll actually watch the Kodiak bear kill and consume. They don't even move off the beach. They're still there because they realize, hey, if I'm healthy, uh, these Kodiak bears are going to leave me alone. So they actually welcome them, hugging them. So because they say, okay, they're going to hug me and they're going to move on. So, but it basically shows you that the walruses have, walruses are very intelligent animals. They actually have the understanding that they're better off having the sick ones consumed by the Kodiak bears so that they don't all get sick and they, they all die. They sound like Nazis to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me also make a theological point, is that if you're going to argue that uh, physical death is bad and evil in all contexts, what do you do with the passage in Genesis 6-3 where God says, I'm going to shorten the human lifespan down to 120 years maximum? What that did is it restrained evil. I mean, a serial killer can do a lot of damage in 900 years, but they only get to live 100 years, they do a lot less damage. And so the shorter lifespan was actually for our benefit to restrain the expression of evil. You know, what if Adolf Hitler lived 900 years? Fortunately, he died at age 56. And the other thing is we need to appreciate, notice that the creator of the universe himself chose to die. And that was a good death. It was through that death that we can be redeemed from our sin and evil. So I think it's a theological mistake to identify physical death as evil in all contexts. It is in some contexts, no doubt about it, but it's not evil in all contexts. And the greatest gift we got was the death of the creator of the universe. Okay. We're going to wrap up. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Zucker to close his prayer. But before we do that, I just want you to know I'm going to be Googling Kodiak bears and walruses. I need to see this video of the hugging. It's the most exciting thing in my life right, right now, okay? Again, thanks to our distinguished guests as well as their, their families that are here. Uh, thank you for you guys just being a part of, of this exciting experience. Dr. Zucker? Yeah, we want to thank each one of you, and be sure to be on the Evidence and Answers newsletter to hear what is going on. You know, we're always bringing in uh, top Christian scholars like this. And I also want to put a plug in for Southern Evangelical Seminary. It was a seminary built on apologetics, and so one of the best apologetic seminaries in the world. And uh, some of the faculty from RTB teach there mm -hmm. as well. So you get you oh, you schedule to teach later this month. So you see, you get them all there. Those of you here that want to learn this in live classes, Pac Rim Christian University. Got some students here. And, and we will develop an apologetics 
Is that right, Shane? In the near future, so that we can have these guys flying in and teaching at our school as well. All right, so pray for that. All right. Let me close this in prayer. We thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you for each one here that seeks to learn your truth, but also get equipped to engage their culture and world for Christ. May you strengthen faith, give us uh, the tools we need to be effective ambassadors for your son, Jesus Christ. May many here make a great impact in the world for Christ, and may many here see friends and family come to a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucaran. Evidence and Answers.